back to another mini mini episode brought to you by the Future Cities podcast. My name is Tessa Martinez, and I am the host of these mini episodes where I discuss current events with graduate students involved in the Urban Resilience to Extremes Research Network. My guest today is Stephen Elser. Hello, Stephen. Hello, hello. And if you listen to the last full-length episode of the Future Cities podcast, then you'll know that Stephen is a PhD student at Arizona State University in the School of Life Sciences. While his background is predominantly in aquatic ecology, he's always been interested in the connections between people and the environment. His research now focuses on ecosystem services of green infrastructure and the ways in which urban stakeholders perceive and use those services to prepare for the future. Prior to ASU, Stephen graduated from the University of Notre Dame in 2014 with a BS in environmental science and a minor in sustainability. After his undergraduate, Stephen worked for two years in a stream ecology lab at Baylor University before starting his PhD in the fall of 2016. So our first topic today revolves around where the coronavirus started and in some ways why it started. And just to give some background information on this, uh, according to the CDC, in January 30th of this year, COVID-19, also known as the novel coronavirus, was declared a public health emergency of international concern by International Health Regulations Emergency Committee of the World Health Organization. And it's been suggested that the animal to person transfer occurred in the seafood market in Wuhan, China, and since then has spread across the world. And our first article that we'll be discussing is an article written in The Conversation. And this topic ties in with urban ecology because merging infectious diseases have a lot to do with population density in urban areas, not just for this coronavirus, but for future viruses as well. And yeah, so I'm just wondering, Stephen, what, what do you have to say about this? Uh, yeah, well, so I want to preface this by saying that uh, I'm not an epidemiologist or, uh, or even a, uh, a disease ecologist. Um, so a lot of my opinions are probably not that <laughs> worthwhile. Um, but I, I, I think that I have, I have some general thoughts. And so one is that, you know, obviously we live in a very urban world and people live in cities for a lot of reasons, job opportunities, food, culture lots of other things, lots of good things about cities. And uh, the fact that so many people are crammed into a small amount of space is good in some ways because it gives room for lots of opportunities to improve efficiencies. For example, uh, distributing energy and water to an apartment complex full of like 500 people is more efficient than distributing it if they were spread out in a hundred different homes, for example, right? Um, and from a conservation sort of dynamic, you might want to um, prioritize densifying and building up in cities so as to cut down on land use change. So like, there's these good things that we can get out of you know, being crammed into tight spaces in cities. But obviously a case like this, where we have a now pandemic from this uh, coronavirus, we see some of the um, negative consequences of that close proximity. So this is an example of how close connectivity with each other can actually be a detriment to uh, the community and to the resilience of people in cities. And so that's sort of interesting because connectivity is frequently touted as being a good thing for um, resilience. So 
social connections in terms of, let's say, uh, heat vulnerability, because that's something that I think about a lot in Phoenix, um, you know, a leading um, factor related to heat death in Phoenix is uh, social isolation. So if you don't have people to check in on you during an, an extreme heat event, they might not know that maybe your AC went out and that you need help. But if you have those connections and people, you know, checking in on you, then you might have someone to know, oh, your AC is out, come over to my place. Um, but with yeah, what the coronavirus is showing us now is too many physical social connections could be a detriment in cases like this. Of course, then there are also possibilities of like, well, if you have social connections and people know you're feeling sick, they'll know not to come near you, but they can still interact with you in positive ways in more like um, disconnected, I guess, disconnected ways via like internet or bringing you food, but keeping a safe distance, things like that. So there's ways to balance this, but yeah, I think this sort of, yeah, the, the coronavirus really does sort of show us some of the detriments of that, that being crammed in together. Yeah, um, and I think it's, it is interesting because it kind of touches on two different like spatial, I don't wanna say like issues, but just um, occurrences nowadays. And that's that, you know, you're mentioning population density and just how close we are living to each other um, especially in urban, like giant urban cities like this, um, but also just globalization in general, um, the interconnectedness of the entire globe nowadays, and just how, um, you know, a virus that would probably take much longer to travel around um, had, you know, if we weren't so interconnected, um, is now just traveling super fast, and we're having outbreaks in Italy and Seattle here and then uh, just a couple in Phoenix so I think it's it's definitely um, shedding light on some really interesting dynamics that are at play nowadays. Yeah absolutely uh, yeah I think that sort of again speaks to some of the some trade-offs that we have with this this connectivity both yeah in, in cramped quarters but like you said um, how easy it is for people to to move from one place to another nowadays compared to you know 100 years ago you can get you can get across the world on a plane ride you know in less than a day and carry with you you know whatever sorts of things were with you when you got on the plane so you know that's good in a lot of ways because it means that we can go experience new places new cultures and you know have those sort of imports exports that are important to um you know people's everyday lives but yeah we get this trade off now well, people that are sick traveling all over the place and spreading um, a disease. So yeah, yeah. It's pluses and minuses. Yeah, and it's also interesting to see how much it exposes our our infrastructure and how vulnerable it really is. Because I I mean I've been loosely following I don't I don't know stocks or stock market like that well. I'm not super well versed in that that area, but we're seeing dips that we haven't seen since, you know, the 2008 recession and just oil imports and exports and all these things that we're really reliant reliant on um as a, you know, global population. Yeah, no, obviously it's it's tragic, but it is uh, interesting to think about and see how some things sort of play out and how like you mentioned how our infrastructure systems are prepared for such an event. So obviously within the Urban Resilience to Extremes project, we talk predominantly about extreme weather events as our, you know, extremes, but there are different types, right? Also, there are social extremes like 
economic recessions or civil unrest, or but now we're experiencing this totally different sort of extreme of this pandemic. And, you know, how are we going to see infrastructure respond to that? So, uh, you know, I, obviously there's a lot in the news now. You see lots of conferences and meetings being canceled and like outright or being shifted to be entirely online. A lot of universities are now trying to shift entirely to online lectures and whatnot. So just totally avoiding going to classes. Businesses are asking people to, when possible, you know, work from home. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be interesting to see whether, um, Companies like Zoom, for example, which you know we're using to record this interview right now, do they have the server capacity to handle all of these new people that are probably going to be using Zoom to for for their work purposes or for education purposes or you know other companies that are doing sort of similar things? Do they have the capability to handle that? It's um, a really also thinking about. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying that's a really great question. I hadn't considered that. Yeah, and then I was also thinking about. Well, so yeah, some some people are able to work from home, um, but a lot of professions don't allow that. So it's going to be interesting to see what like what sorts of groups of people might be maybe more exposed to uh, to coronavirus based on their job, and uh, and and how that falls out in terms of. Uh, like equity and making sure that people that are maybe more vulnerable in some ways are now maybe even going to be more exposed to a virus because of the sorts of jobs that they have. So that's something and a dynamic that I think we need to pay attention to and, and, and call attention towards. And then also thinking about um, physical infrastructure that we have in place. So a couple like earlier, maybe a year ago, we had an episode about resilient hospitals and that was particular about designing hospitals that are resilient to extreme weather events but thinking about how, okay, are hospitals built in the US to handle such an influx of patients that we're probably gonna see from coronavirus? And um, so if can they handle them? And if not, what do we do? Can we roll out pop-up facilities at a sufficient rate? Uh, what buildings can we use for multiple purposes um, to help house uh, patients and quarantine where necessary? So I think, yeah, it's gonna be uh, really interesting to see how some of these these infrastructure elements play out um, over the course of, uh, of this pandemic. Yeah. Um, well, I guess let's move on to the second topic um, on a less uh, depressing note, but also actually that's kind of ironic because <laughs> <laughs> the next topic talks about depression, um, <laughs> but it talks about it in a positive way and how it can be helped. So this article written by Ritu Chatterjee for NPR discusses research conducted in Philadelphia that found that having access to green spaces can actually reduce symptoms of depression for people who live near them, especially in low-income neighborhoods. And these green spaces could really take the form of a community garden or just anywhere that people living in urban areas can be a little bit more connected to nature. And I think this is a really awesome concept because it dives into two relevant topics circulating around nowadays um, that are mental health and um, are just our busy way of life. You know, everybody's always go, go, go. And I mean, at least in the US, very focused on productivity um, in business. And I just, I think it's, I think it's a really interesting find you know, that we could all be a little bit more connected to nature and that actually might help our mental 
and, you know, just well-being in general. Yeah, totally. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of great things that green spaces do for people in cities. So, yeah, this article is talking about how it might alleviate depression. And I think this is, this, uh, there, are, there are lots of papers out there now sort of illustrating the point of, yeah, how green or natural spaces in cities can sort of help alleviate stress, reduce depression, help people's cognitive function. Um, but there are other benefits too, uh, which I think are like really important and sort of tie into some of those effects. So, I mean, just walking around in a park, I think is likely to reduce stress and help ease depression, but there's other, um, features of green spaces that can help combat those things as well. So community gardens, for example, so obviously they provide a benefit of providing food, right? People can eat that. That's great. Um, but that's not all they do. So when I've been listening to conversations in scenario workshops uh, that are that our network puts on in Baltimore, for example, I remember one group mentioning that they wanted to increase the number of community gardens in the city. Um, but like the first benefit that they mentioned as part of the strategy wasn't food production is actually community building. So they wanted more community gardens to just increase social cohesion within their neighborhood. Uh, because, you know, community gardens and other green spaces serve as gathering places for so many people. It's where you go to catch up with friends and neighbors and build meaningful relationships. And so those sorts of connections are important for building resilient communities. Sort of what I was talking about earlier about those connections, helping to um, address uh, extreme heat events and, and, and vulnerabilities associated with that. So, yeah, I think green spaces are, are really great in terms of building those, those social connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on the on the flip side, it does make me wonder, like, what kind of effect is it happening is happening, um, you know, by us being inside staring at computers all day, you know, most of the work that I do um, is on a computer. And then in my free time, I'm looking at a screen a lot. So it definitely does raise some important questions as to how that's really affecting everyone. You know, since this is a pretty new, I mean, this the way we're living life nowadays staring at screens is very very new in um you know in comparison to the lifespan of or time span you know that humans have been in existence so these are really new issues that are coming up yeah i think i i think there definitely are new issues coming up from this the actual total shift in uh in how humans are living but I, there's actually even been some research showing that these that even just being able to view green things from inside provides you with benefits. So like I, there have been some papers showing that, for instance, people um, uh, recovering in hospitals um, that when they had green views from the, their bedroom windows in their hospitals, they required less medication, nursing attention, and they recovered faster. So like, that's one benefit that you don't even need to be going outside necessarily to receive some of these benefits that green spaces are providing. Green spaces also help cool down, you know, temperatures of your home or require you to use less air conditioning. So even if you're not going outside, you're still getting some amount of benefit from green spaces. Obviously, if you go outside, you probably get more. Uh, but even if you're spending a lot of your time in, inside, like many city dwellers do, you're going to be getting some sort of benefit from, from green spaces. Mm-hmm. 
that just about sums it up for this um, this month's mini-sode. So uh, thank you for coming on with me today, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me, Tessa. This is my first time actually being interviewed for the podcast, so uh, it was it was fun. I'm happy to be happy to be here. Cities podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.